Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Good morning. One of the issues that we discuss quite often in our society, sometimes without knowing it, is the issue of heritage, whether we're talking about the names of towns, councils, cities, discussing a television program around Shaka Zulu, or even discussing in some coded way our our very souls, we're talking about our heritage. And to respond to this, politicians often talk about heritage too. At the same time, government will correctly find money to fund certain heritage sites. They will create places and squares and statues and museums to remember what's happened to our past. But what happens to those sites? Do we look after them? Just recently, we've heard stories of places where the ashes of the dead are being kept, are being vandalized in Joburg. Yesterday you heard about the famous square in Cliptown where the Freedom Charter was adopted by thousands of people. Now it seems virtually neglected. And from time to time you hear stories about other places, Robben Island, Lily's Leaf, how communities in the town now known as Winnie Mandela decided to keep calling it Brantford. So then why does this happen and how do we involve communities in protecting our heritage and our heritage sites? First, this morning, the uh, the, the the chair of the Robben Island Museum Trust and the former anti-apartheid activist, and of course someone who's played a big role in our society over the years, Dr. Saths Cooper. Then, the situation in Joburg, the vice chair of the Johannesburg Heritage Foundation, is Kathy Munro. And finally, involving communities and involving people in conversations around heritage, Professor Musokolo is a cultural heritage expert and executive director of the Heritage Development Trust. We start then with Dr. Saths Cooper, the chair of the Robin Island Museum. Dr. Cooper, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. So often we see a minister and a ceremony to open a new heritage site. What's happening to heritage sites afterwards? Are we really looking after them? Well, that is a loaded question because we have seen uh, in the media pictures of degradation like we've seen uh, of the different artifacts uh, and sites you've mentioned. And there are reasons for that. Uh, I think primarily the main reason is that there's a disconnect between the sites we have declared as sites of memory and the meaning to our people generally. Historic and other heritage sites have become highly contested because of our complex and divided history. Indeed, all of this came to a height during the COVID period when very little happened, very little maintenance, very little refurbishment, very little uh, looking after of these sites. Indeed, our, a lot of our infrastructure generally in the country just was neglected because of what we underwent during that period. Now, that's not an excuse. It's merely an interpretation of why some of these places have gotten to where they've gotten. However, there's also different silos in government. So you have the official Department of Public Works and Infrastructure that's responsible for the maintenance and repair and general upkeep of those sites. So while, and I'll be very specific with Robben Island, while 
it falls under the Department of Sports Arts and Sport Arts and Culture. It is multiply owned. There are 22 pieces of legislation uh, governing Robben Island in all its its uh, glory in our country. It's a World Heritage Site, one of the leading World Heritage Sites in the world for a variety of reasons, from prehistoric times through the co- uh, colonial period to the more recent past. And now, the way that government works tended to be in silos. However, the good news is that currently, all these uh, different entities are working together in ensuring that Robben Island and other sites like Freedom Park, the first uh, monument to democracy, are maintained in the way they are. However, we've not had a real communication and discussion with ourselves about these sites to enable people to actually appreciate their meaning and to become part of those sites. So if we come uh, fast forward to uh, the 26th of June and its uh, celebration of uh, the Freedom Charter and all that went in 2003, I think there was about 160 million that was pumped into that area with a four-star hotel, etc. The degradation is because around it is socioeconomic uh, difficulties. Now, you can have a heritage site, you can have your castle on a hill, but if around it there are shacks, what do you do? So we need to be looking at it very, very differently instead of merely looking at these as uh, important sites to remember, to celebrate, to commemorate, etc. We should be looking at communities around who are not part of what is going on. So it becomes an elite activity. And that is a late motif in our heritage space right now. It seems to me uh, to hear you talk, Dr. Cooper, I mean, I sort of have this image in my head of a statue or a bust or a, a commemoration of something. And one South African walking past it, seeing a piece of litter on it and thinking that's not right, like we can't have that. This place must be looked after because this is what it means to me. And another South African seeing the same thing and doing nothing because it doesn't mean anything to them if you see what I mean. What does that mean about our society? I mean, it shows the divisions. It shows also our different heritages, and we're trying to sort of mold them into one in, in maybe quite a, um, quite a sort of rough-and-ready way. Well, it goes deeper than that, uh, uh, Stephen. It goes to the heart of the past and its impact psychologically on all of us. So what one person... Uh, throws down as litter. And and you can see that on the highways. And these are, you know, you, you often see these really expensive cars and somebody throws out a litter bag. Right? Now, that speaks to a psychology that's been injured. We speak, I, I mean, I'm a psychologist and I can see that it's easy to throw the thing out of the car rather than carry the garbage inside you. 
And it speaks to so much that we haven't dealt with. We haven't transitioned from the past to a, a very liberal democratic state, which next year we'll celebrate the 30th anniversary of. So there are huge gaps. We've left people behind. It's become them and us. And then we blame them for desecrating. We blame them when they go on the streets to protest, you see. So it's all those issues. So you, you know, and when you have an important site of memory that ought to be celebrated, despite its contestation on its historicity, we ought to come together in a compact, but we don't because of the huge socioeconomic gaps and the fact, very importantly, that people in power have tended to use that power largely at a, at a level that is visible for self-aggrandizement rather than in looking at that connection between them and those who are their constituents, who have almost nothing. When you are in the state of starvation and you are in the state of uh, almost hopelessness and helplessness, you can't blame the victim for that. You ought to look elsewhere. It's us, the elite, who have created the situation. And I put myself in that position because we have done little to bridge that gap between the mass of people. We actually don't have history as a compulsory subject in our country. And when it's taught, it's taught in a terrible way. You know, I went to a training uh, a few weeks ago and this was an official training, and the person talked of uh, the previous flag, and somebody raised, you know, it's, it's a symbol of, et cetera, et cetera. And this woman blithely says, no, the, the flag was retired, completely oblivious to the fact that our courts have pronounced mm. on it, et cetera. You see, so you have this contestation, massive understandings, gap in uh, and misunderstanding. So we haven't reached out, created the spirit of common understanding that yes, we came from colonialism. Yes, we came from apartheid. Now we're in democracy. Let's deal with it. We don't want to deal with it because it's easier to whine and, and mm -hmm. whinge about the past than to look together for compacts and ways to deal with the huge problems we confront today in order that tomorrow our children don't continue to inherit our baggage because that baggage is disaster for the future. Our children, the majority in this country, will be left carrying our burden and it's adults behaving badly doing that. Um, Doctor, if a heritage matters, so if a place is important to you, if you know that someone you revere, you know, was here or something happened here, or even a member of your family, and you see it being damaged or neglected, I mean, that must hurt you in a way. It must be painful to see that. Oh, it is terrible. I, I think we've had this uh, battle with ex-political prisoners on Robben Island uh, and elsewhere in this country, raising this over time. And we find we get stuck between one department and another. And I can say now that with maturity, 
that the different departments are coming together. You see, uh, for instance, we have 10 World Heritage Sites. Now, the department that holds that mark is the Department of Forestries, uh, Fisheries and Environment, which has tended to play almost no role, for instance, in Robben Island, and now is beginning to come to the party. You cannot hold a UNESCO mark and think you have no responsibility. So unlike in the past, let me be very clear, during the apartheid era, whatever was regarded as important, take the military museum, take Paul Kruger's house, take uh, Fort Trekker monument, all these were clearly demarcated for for maintenance and for highlighting. They became part of any tourist route as little tourists as we had in those days. Today, many of those are still there because of that. But the other sites somehow have fallen between the cracks. It's time to change it. And the time is now, and we can do it because we can create the opportunity for young people. We can create the opportunity for divided people in this country to understand that we have a shared history. The interpretation may be quite different, but that history is one. And all those monuments, all those places of remembrance ought to continue to play a signal role in reshaping us from a terrible past. All of us are wounded. You, me, our listeners, everybody. There's nobody who's not wounded by that terrible past in one way or the other. And if we can work in a way to acknowledge, number one, there was a terrible past. Number two, we have these sites. And the world has recognized that. Nobody this acknowledges that Robin Island has that history. It comes from the prehistoric times, the Phoenicians, etc. The Portuguese, the Chinese Armada was there before the Portuguese Bartholomew Diaz and, uh, uh, and, and so on. Okay. And all of that plays a role. If, if the Portuguese had succeeded, next year we'd be uh, speaking about 50 years of freedom and we'd be speaking in Portuguese. But fortunately, the Coringua dispelled them. So it's all those kinds of things mm. that are not there, available, accessible in our history. It's time to forget the divisions of the past in that way and acknowledge them and use them positively so that our children are not impacted uh, uh, in the future. Dr. Seth Scooper, thank you so much. Chair of the Robben Island Museum. You're with SFM. Your mediator conversation continues 12 minutes to nine. Uh, Kathy Monroe is the vice chair of the Johannesburg Heritage Foundation. Uh, Kathy, good morning to you. Um, what, good morning. Ha- what's happening to heritage sites in Joburg? Are you finding that some are being neglected and damaged? Uh, of course, we've got a lot of neglect. It's been part of the overall pattern of the problems in Johannesburg. But nonetheless, there's still much to celebrate. I like the message from Robin Island because I think much the same message can be conveyed for Johannesburg, that we have so much that is amazing, that's worth looking at. Those of us who live in Johannesburg often don't open our eyes when we should as we drive past. Um, perhaps, you know, you 
handling a screed of water on a main road and missing the fact that on the side of the road you're passing a couple of blue clocks. I'm thinking about the blue clocks commemorating the Lippert House on Oxford Road, for example. It's there, uh, and you can imagine the past. So Heritage 2, <coughs> excuse me, is about um, bringing your imagination into the present. And we do this with um, many blue clocks. Quite a few of our blue clocks have been damaged. We have about 400 blue clocks in Johannesburg put up by uh, various bodies. Um, Johannesburg Heritage is the most active group at the moment. It's one area of the city that works closely with us and works very successfully um, under Eric Itzkin of um, City Culture and Heritage. And um, we do our very best to get up about 30 blue plaques a year at the moment. Kathy Munro, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Vice Chair of the Johannesburg Heritage Foundation. In a moment, Professor Musa Kholu on communities and heritage. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Nine minutes to nine, the time. Continue your mediated conversation around heritage sites. Professor Musa Kholu is a cultural heritage expert and executive director of the Heritage Development Trust. Professor Kholu, good morning. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Good morning. It's a beautiful Wednesday. How, how important is it to involve the community around a site? If you want a site to be looked after, to be celebrated, how important is that? Because uh, the, obviously the point's been made that sometimes someone almost comes and drops a heritage site in the community and then leaves it. Well, it's very important at the planning stages, even before you put up the heritage site, there are critical um stakeholders that we have to in, involve is the community, community people and community structures, then the scientists in the conservation and preservation, as well as those in the economy who will look at the economic value uh, of heritage, of a heritage site in the context of uh, the, 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 the heritage tourism industry. In many parts of the world, these are always uh, brought together to ensure that there is sustainability. And we must remember also that Development of heritage sites should be done in a manner that com- uh, complies with the, the, the sustainable development goals so that you don't just do it. The problem that we have in South Africa is this um, too much focus on the event. The biggest day in a heritage site is when the minister comes to unveil it. And then after that, we leave and nobody remembers what it was all about. Then it's left with co- communities who don't, were not even actually in, initiated through community education, awareness, and so on. But also, as Dr. First Cooper was saying, biggest problem is the education system that does not teach us properly about our past and, and why we must preserve it for the future generations. So there's a big gap there. Communities in places like um, uh, where the Freedom Charter was uh, passed in 1955. People come and go. But if it was done in the school system, even when new people arrive, they would know that you have to value this because it is part of the definition of your identity, not only your identity, but the identity of your children going into the future. But you can't blame the communities. They generally get lost, left out, and only get invited when there is an event to open the site, and then after that, nobody knows or cares what needs to happen after. Is part of this also, you talk about education, but um, is part of it also 
that we have different heroes. So, for example, um, for various reasons, most people in the country probably know a bit about Shaka Zulu. They probably know more about Shaka Zulu than Hosi Mampuru II and may not even know why the prison is named after him, if you see what I mean. Is that part of the issue here? We sort of look to different histories in our country. No, it's part of the history. You know, um, uh, fortunately, I was involved in the um, uh, planning when uh, the prison was renamed as Hoshima Puru. So I know a little bit of the history there and how it happened within the family, which was part of all these things about royal families fighting among themselves and so on and so on. So, but then, if you don't document that, and you don't make it part of the education system, and you don't make it part of the community awareness system, in terms of identity, then it will all get lost in the process because then you don't care, nobody knows. Uh, Dr. Cooper uh, spoke about the apartheid era. The entirety of the apartheid system was cultural. It was based on language, it was based on conservation of their own history. It was based on making sure that the other person does not emerge to the extent of the Africana. To counter that, you need equal efforts in the cultural heritage sphere, in the language sphere, in the history sphere, in the schools, at universities, and in every part of the country, at community level, to ensure that that which kept you out of knowing your past does not influence you going into the future. Now, every time these days we refer to a uh, uh, model conservation of uh, uh, cultural artifacts and so on, we are bound to look at apartheid and how well they did it. It should not be so. It's been 30 years now. We should be able to look at those flagship projects that Nelson Mandela, um, when he became president, passed on with his cabinet. Now, where are they? Robben Island is a complete, completely un, 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 uh, unlooked after. And so there's a problem we should find, Stephen, that it's not just about the communities is about how we have structured our society. We are too much event-oriented. There must be an event where the minister must speak, and then that's it. It's over after that. Um, Professor Kolu, I'm always interested in how we don't talk much now about what happened during the COVID pandemic, and it seems to me that one of the reasons is that it's too painful. People don't want to talk about it because it's too painful. Now, we have an amazing heritage, but it's a painful heritage, too. It's one of division. It's one of war. It's one of uh, dispossession. um, It's one of uh, one group claiming victory over another. I mean, it's it's so many things. Um, Could that be part of it, that actually people want to look to uh, the future? Uh, We want to look to... Uh, Wakanda, to use an example, you know, we want to look to a sort of a different future rather than looking at the pain of the past, especially when people come from from families that have been really uh, marked and scarred by this. Yeah, no, no, no. You you, you don't um, remove the pains of the past if you want to construct a solid uh, future for cultural future for your people. Um, look at what the Jews have, have done, for example. Um, with uh, the tragedies in Germany. So they've been able to rally around that, painful as it was. In 1918, there was influenza, and composer of music, Taluza uh, composed a song which was sung, sung very widely in schools, reminding people about what happened during that, so that memory 
will be able to serve people well so that it's not repeated or they are informed better when something similar happens. I think it's high time now that we could heritageize the tragedies of the past so that memory can serve our future generations. That, For example, should another pandemic happen, how do we respond to it? How do future generations respond to it? COVID-19 took everybody by surprise. But there's been lots of pandemics for the, for the past 1,000 years. Every 100 years or so, it always happens that there's a big pandemic that comes. But then, because of what you say, Stephen, that it becomes painful, sometimes people want to forget it quickly, as quickly as possible. But there have been examples also where tragedies like that have formed part of the memories and rallied people around so that in future they respond better and not uh, be, for example, surprised by the Holocaust. I think the Jews have done very well in that field. Professor Musukulu, thank you very much indeed, Executive Director of the Heritage Development Trust. My thanks also to Cathy Munro, Vice Chair of the Johannesburg Heritage Foundation, and starting us off today, Dr. Seth Cooper, the anti-apartheid activist, of course, and Chair of the Robben Island Museum. It's a fascinating conversation around all of this.